Welcome to the first season of Fluster Clucks, when we launched at the beginning of the pandemic as a mom's retreat. We're no longer stuck in our houses, but most of us feel stuck in our anxious patterns. I'm Lynn Lyons, an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. And I'm Robin, your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law. Parenting is a Fluster Clucks. And we'll help you find your way. Hi, Lynn. How are you today? Doing well. Excited to talk about this next subject because I think you have a lot to offer here. This is a big topic. This isn't something... I feel like everyone is impacted by this because we're talking about family culture and we're talking about the legacy of family culture. And really, here's the question that as you as a parent are thinking about how you manage your kids, how did you grow up? What was it like with your parents? And what did you learn about handling different emotions and expressing different emotions, tolerating emotions in other people? This is a big topic that I see as so important to what we want to teach our kids. Yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of moments you have with your families that are your clients of these aha moments for the parents. We had to start somewhere. So the context mm-hmm. of how we're parenting is often framed with how we were raised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I do when I'm meeting a family, and particularly if it's a family that really is dealing with anxiety, and I'll say to the kids, well, which one of your parents do you think is the worrier? Or are both of them warriors? And the kids virtually never do they say, oh gosh, that's a really tough question, Lynn. They immediately know which parent that I'm talking about. And then I ask the parents and I ask the kids, I say, so what about, what about the grandparents? Who do you think taught your mom how to be a warrior? Or who do you think showed that for your, in your, in your parents' family? And the kids, again, like the whole family, it, it, it's often sometimes sort of, we, we, we laugh a lot because they're like, oh my gosh, if you knew my grandma, right? Or my, my pop-up is such a worrier. They're really aware of it when we, when we talk about it. And then it opens up this whole conversation about how these patterns are passed down and what becomes the language of the family in terms of their emotions and the way they manage problems and crises and relationships. It's always a part of a family's interactions. There's no way around it. This sounds like a very good reality TV show, like the postscript to the newlywed game. After they marry, then having at one point, (laughs) having the grandkids come back and talk about their parents and grandparents. So when you think about the emotional culture of a family, what are you talking about specifically? It's not really about our, our identity and our heritage. It's, it's more like from a, from a psychotherapist's viewpoint, what do you mean? So what I mean is what does a family do when big emotions show up? And big emotions are very often normal emotions. So how does a family respond during a period of grief? How does a family respond when somebody is just feeling sad? What does a family do to manage a uncertain situation? So let, let's just think of, you know, what, what does one family do? They, they get on a plane and you're, you know, you're a traveler. So we talk about this because traveling requires flexibility. What does one family do when they get on a plane and the pilot comes on and says, Oh gosh, you know what? We're, we've just been fogged in. We have to go back to the terminal and we're not going to be able to leave tonight. So how does a family manage those emotions? And what did you see your parents doing? How did you see your parents navigate through the tricky parts of life so that when somebody was angry or disappointed or anxious or when there was a death or when there was sadness, how did that family talk about it? How did you support each other? And sometimes more impactfully, how did you deny it? How did you close it down? How did you shut it down? There's nothing to see here. We aren't going to have that discussion. We're not going to tolerate that. And there's there's just a lot there that when you think about the way that you are interacting with your children, what are you doing with their emotional lives and their responses? A lot of it probably comes from 
what what you were taught as a child. Sometimes you will embrace what you're taught. And then other times, interestingly, people will go the opposite direction and very much reject what they were taught. So being able to recognize that and look back on that and understand where those patterns come from is really helpful in your own parenting because it comes up very quickly. It's very reflexive for a lot of people and they go through that with their children without even having a lot of self-awareness about it. So it's good to sort of bring it up to the surface and examine it a little bit. It's almost like when you have a family and both of the parents are in your session, you could go over what is your emotional dowry you bring mm-hmm. to the family. So for example, one family may have a strength where one family had no issues with expressing anger, but the partner's family supplanted anger and no one expressed anger, for example. Mm -hmm. That comes up a a lot of times, like one family was okay talking about sex and the other couple, and the other member of the couple said, oh, my family never talked about sex. You know, so it's it's about assessing like the backgrounds and saying, my family did this and I do feel this was really like one of the better things I'm bringing but my family also did this and this is a pattern I want to be aware of and and not repeat. Yeah. And you know, really good marriage therapists, the really good couples therapists, that's what they do when they're talking to couples and they're trying to help them work through what's going on between them. There's a lot of taking stock of where you learned patterns and what feels normal to you and how it feels so different to your to your partner. I remember talking to one family and I think it was the mom was saying that in her family, if there was an issue, if somebody was upset about something, they would have a big blow up and they would talk about it. But then everybody would sort of be like, okay, and they would resolve it in a healthy way. And her partner's family, it was just generations of quiet, seething resentment. So you can imagine if you're in a relationship with somebody like that, that when she was upset about something, she really wanted to get it out in the open and talk about it. And her partner had no idea how that looked or how it would end. He would just shut down. And his whole idea was, if we don't talk about it, then we don't have to deal with it. Now imagine if you've got kids and you're trying to parent together and you have these two very disparate ways of dealing with conflict, not talking about that and not recognizing that becomes a problem. And what what feels really good about it, and I know this from my own marriage, which is going to be 30 years in in a month, I know this from my own marriage, is that when you are talking to your partner and they say to you, you know what? I get what I'm why I'm doing this because this is this is what I learned in my family. That feels so different than the ultimate like if you want to throw gasoline on a marital conflict when you say you're being just like your mother or you sound just like your father right? That is a disaster. But when you yourself say, you know what? I recognize I'm doing this because this is what I learned in my family. Oh my gosh. It's like melting butter. Is it as bad if you say, I recognize why you're doing this because you've seen a repeated pattern of your mother or father doing it for you. (laughs) Is that the same gasoline? (laughs) Well, um, that's a little, that's a little bit more sophisticated gasoline, um, but unfortunately can have the same outcome. But I think that, I think that one of the things that we can show our kids and and that we can talk about in our families is how are these patterns passed down? And then when you acknowledge them, I think that's one of the interesting things is that we don't have to be so defensive and have such strong ownership of these patterns, right? That they're yours and you're, you know, how dare you insult my family? If you just say, yeah, this is what, it's kind of interesting. This is what happened in my family and this is how I recognize it's impacting me. And you start talking about it and then you talk to your kids about it. It really is kind of interesting. It becomes sort of this curious exploration. It's sort of like the 23andMe of emotional investigation where you begin to see these patterns. It's kind of cool. And it doesn't have to be something that becomes so conflicted and so angry. It's just an exploration. And it is it is pretty interesting. So let's think of it from a high-level discussion. You mm-hmm. as a family therapist who's had access to talking to hundreds and hundreds of families over the years. So I think there are some ground rules for thinking of how to think about your own family because no family is perfect. Well, I think the three 
sort of the three big ones that we can look at, that we can examine in terms of how does a family manage, I think are anger, anxiety, and then sadness and loss and grief. Say, so so let me give you an example of a family in, in each of those categories, maybe that, that is, is sort of an extreme, but then we'll go back to a baseline. So there are some families where death and loss and grief are very much a part of what they talk about, very much a, t- a part that, that life and death are, and, and birth and all of that, those, those cycles of life are very much a part of what they, that they experience. Uh, I have a, a friend who is my age and she's Irish and they still, she remembers as a, as a child, they still had in-home wakes for people when they had passed away and the kids were involved in it. So there was a lot of talk and there was a lot of mourning and there was a lot of grieving and there was a lot of celebrating and laughing and crying. And so that whole sadness and grief and loss was was very much a part of her family's culture. That's a that's a healthy way to look at it. Now I'm sure that in those Irish families, there were other things going on, um, but in terms of their ability to, to grieve. Now, let's look at, let's see, who can we think of in sort of popular a popular historical culture? Well, I can think of a few examples, actually. So if you've, if you've watched the Jane Fonda documentary, which- That was so good. You can put the link up from that. But Jane Fonda's mother committed suicide. And after she died, no one ever spoke of her again. Her father never mentioned her. I don't think she went to the funeral. There was absolutely, her mother literally disappeared from her young life. There was no talk about it. There was no mention of it. So that's the other extreme. And I know I've talked to several families where that was the case, where a parent died and or a sibling died, and it was just done and over with. I remember looking back, and and some of you are going to be too younger young to remember this. But Jacqueline Kennedy lost a baby. There was no discussion of that during the time when she was newly coming into the spotlight, and that she was, I think, that he was running for president. I can't remember the exact timing of it, but she had a horrible loss. There was not a discussion of it. There was not room for grief or mourning or talking about that. So that would be an example in terms of loss and grief and sadness of how differently families can manage that. I remember, and I think I've talked about this before, but there are some families that don't want to have pets because the parents are so worried that the children won't be able to handle the death of a pet and not be able to work through that. So instead of having that experience, they say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to even allow our children to experience death and loss and sadness in general. I recall we, we've talked about that where a parent is, not wanting their child to experience the pain of loss of losing mm-hmm. a pet. So that's that's an anxious parent wanting to eliminate their child's discomfort. Mm-hmm. But if you're from a family where they just want to push away grief and mm-hmm. not acknowledge it and not discuss it, or even thinking of how we as a culture didn't discuss miscarriage mm-hmm. loss and other mm-hmm. things before, mm-hmm. it's just it's shying away from the vulnerability of sadness. And yes, perceiving that sadness is weakness. Yeah, and I think vulnerability is a is a really important word as you talk about that. That sadness is weakness, and I think that sadness is scary. If you grew up in a family where you never saw your parents cry. And so then if they did cry, that meant that something was terribly wrong. Or if you grew up in a family, perhaps where someone was really experiencing sadness or grief or despair in a very deep way. And so you saw that parent crying a lot and grieving a lot. And that's scary for you too. And I think what we're really talking about today is that how do you, how can you talk about that and understand that and just sort of revisit that a little bit so that your own children, you can figure out what's going to be the healthy way for you to talk about and experience and show these emotions to your children. So on both ends of the spectrum, if you've got a a parent that says, you know, crying is for sissies or we're not going to show sadness or, or the other extreme where you've got a parent who is in great sadness and is crying all the time and you can't feel as if they're there for you emotionally. 
Both of those extremes are something that you want to pay attention to as you're parenting your own child. And how would you talk about that differently? How would you talk about sadness and grief and loss with your children in a way that might be different than the way that it was talked about or not talked about in your family? That's what you really want to pay attention to. And the same goes for anger. So say you came from a family where there was explosive anger, maybe even abuse and violence. Maybe there was, you know, real volatility that made you feel very frightened as a child. Or maybe you came from a family where you knew that there was anger, but it was never talked about. And so maybe it was passive aggressive. Maybe you were in between two parents that were very angry at each other, but never worked on their conflict, but went between, you know, used you as a conduit for their anger. Then if, if that's the family history that you have with anger, how are you going to talk to your kids and teach your children and demonstrate to your children that anger is a normal and expectable reaction And how do we demonstrate that to kids? And how do we teach them the way to express their anger and the appropriate way to let people know when they're feeling anger such that it isn't at one of those extremes? You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you, well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique. It's personal and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook. You can add events directly using the touchscreen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. 
When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up, so order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. When you talk about that, and I think about my own family and the the legacy around specific emotions, it's very interesting that I think of how my how I reacted to my mom, whose behavior also was a reaction of her mom's, my grandmother's, and and both of them had two opposite approaches to sadness, for example. Mm-hmm. So then I think of my own reaction to sadness as a mom and why you know, I guess the, the, the correct answer, if there's a correct answer, mm-hmm. is that vanilla ice cream goal of mm-hmm. can I sit with my own child's sadness while remaining in vanilla ice cream so that I'm centering their emotional experience, I'm validating their emotional experience, and I'm not bringing the baggage of my, my mothers and grandmothers and the legacy of react mm-hmm. to their emotion, right? Isn't, is right. that what... Our goal is. Yeah. And the other goal too, is that being able to allow your children to see your expression of sadness or anger or worry in a way that doesn't frighten them. So say in, in that situation that your child is sitting with you and you are feeling incredibly sad about something, how can you express that in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming to them, in a way that doesn't make them feel like they need to to do something to rescue you or get away from you. So there's two things going on. There's you being able to sit with your child's emotion in a way that lets them know that it's okay for them to express it. And you're going to sit there and be vanilla ice cream. You're going to be that holding space for them. And then also, how are you going to express your own emotion so that it doesn't overwhelm them? Because when we think about parental expression of emotion and if you think about your own childhood if you had a parent that expressed their emotion in a way that felt out of control for you then it is very likely that you're not going to be comfortable with your own expression of that emotion so it's it's being able to show the emotion in a way that is manageable and also a way to hold the emotion in a way that's manageable and one of the one of the quick things that happens, you know, with sadness and and with anger and with anxiety, although anxiety we'll talk about in a moment because that's a little bit different, is that we express it in a way that makes a child feel scared. And being able to, you know, say you experienced a loss, how do you express your sadness in front of your child so that they know it's okay? to have those strong feelings, that it's okay to grieve, that it's okay to be disappointed, that it's okay to cry, that it's okay to have it come and go. Those are all the things that we want to help our kids understand. So when those emotions come up, that they have a model that they're going to feel it and they're going to get through it. Because that's the thing that's scary for kids is when will this end? How will we get through this? Well, obviously, you know this. So, you know, I lost my mom when my daughter mm-hmm. was five. Mm-hmm. So I did have to grieve in front of a young child mm-hmm. while while pregnant with my second child. So that was a really fun time. Mm. I always knew to be open with my sadness because mm-hmm. you can't hide it. Mm-hmm. And also when you supplant it for too long, it just doesn't work either. But that's an interesting thing you said of, you know, you have to express grief and loss in a way that is authentic, but the boundary is that you don't want your kids to feel like they need to rescue you. Yeah. Which obviously sounds really important, but 
there's the, what is the balance of letting them be empathic that you are sad? Mm -hmm. And then if they want to, do you just intervene and tell them, no, you don't need to go down a rescuing path. I don't need your rescuing. I just need the space to feel sad about losing grandma or losing grandpa. Yeah. And so- yeah. And so you'd be very direct about it. Like you can, you can say, I'm feeling really sad right now. So say they see you crying or they say you grieving and they say, you know, mommy, are you sad? And you say, yeah, I'm really, I'm feeling very sad right now because I'm thinking about grandma or I'm thinking about grandpa. And what I would, what I can have from you right now is if you came over here and gave me a big hug, that would make me feel better. And then I can, I can handle this sadness and you can go off and be you. Right. So you, you give them, you give them, you show them how can they be empathic to you? And then you give them the message that this is okay. You can be empathic to me. You can give me a hug. Oh, that is so loving and helpful. And now you can go off and still be you. And I think that, that all of the stuff that goes unspoken is the stuff that is so hard for kids to figure out. And so when we're experiencing emotion, so say you were grieving and you were crying about the loss of your mom and your daughter said, mommy, what's the matter? And you said, nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm fine. Right. Or you said, you know, I'm not going to be able to handle this. I'll never get over this. Either one of those things, they don't know what to do with that. So you tell them, you say, come here and give me a hug. And maybe let's share a happy mo- a happy memory that we have with grandma because that'll make us both feel better. And so you walk them through the process of being able to express it and then being able for, for them to move on and continue to be five or continue to be 15 or continue to be seven, however old they are. And it's the same with anger, right? I'm really, you, you have a, you have an angry moment and they say, what's the matter? And you say, oh, I am so, I, I'm sorry. I just got really angry about this and I am going to take a little break. I'm going to take a few deep breaths or I'm going to go and take a walk and I'm going to work through this. Thank you for checking in on me. I got this. It's all of the denial of it. So think about the two, the two unhealthy extremes are the denial of it, the this isn't happening, or the I'm going to overwhelm you with my feelings. And there's a, there's a big sweet spot in the middle and there's a lot of room. It's not this little tiny sweet spot. It's a big sweet spot in the middle where you can express it, you can articulate it, right? There's that emotional literacy. You give them the words, you ask for something from them so they know how to help, but it's something small and age appropriate, of course. And then you give them permission to move forward and you show them that you're capable of doing that too. So, you know, we know that that when when parents are really, really anxious, when parents are really, really depressed, that children step into a role where they're trying to fix it, they're trying to feel safe, they're trying to feel okay, and it becomes pretty detrimental over time because that child hasn't get, been given the room to develop their own self and their own experience and their own feelings. Right. Well, getting back to grief, because grief is a slightly separate uh, situation than having a depressed parent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because grief is situational and can that's happen. Right. But I think that's an interesting thing when I think back to those very challenging times right after my mom's death and having a, a young daughter who was still so, you know, just soaking on my vibe. Mm-hmm. So our proximity was mm-hmm. so there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's true. I think that if the way to look at it is if you feel like you can't hit it in this very big sweet spot, of talking about your sadness, that's absolutely the time that you figure out a way to get in your car by yourself and just mm-hmm. let out grief tears. That's right. But that's also the exact way probably for people who are hang- handling powerful anger as well, mm-hmm. right? Like that's there's right. just that limit of like, this is how I can express my emotions with my kids mm-hmm. uh, in this sweet spot. Otherwise, I am going to take this private. That's right. And then the big question also is, if that's about emotional management, which is what we talked about before in that flattening our emotional curve episode, mm-hmm. is our goal to always be able to process our emotions within the sweet spot? Or is the goal to know when we can and know when we can't? I think that's absolutely the goal is to know when you can and know when you can't, right? So you don't have to do it immediately. And I think you saying, you know, you saying I'm sometimes I have to get in my car and 
go for a drive and let out those angry tears or those, those, that, that grieving cry that I need to have. That's absolutely appropriate. The idea that you have to do everything correctly in the moment as a parent, that's unattainable. And so remember that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so you can have moments in which you're out of your sweet spot and maybe your kids even witness them. But then what you teach them when you come back to it is you you give them a little bit of insight into, into what the process was that you were going through and you you show them the ending. You know, it's really interesting. This reminds me of this. They did, they did this research a while ago where they were asking uh, kids, probably grownups now, but about their parents fighting. And they found that in families where children witness their parents having conflict, normal married conflict, not abusive, out of control conflict, but normal parent conflict. And when those kids saw their parents reconcile, saw their parents be okay, saw their parents work through it, those kids did much better in their own ability later on to manage conflict and work through things. So it's not like we want to take it behind closed doors and not let kids see us work through the process. Oh, that's so interesting because I think I I sort of had this impression that the parents need to have a unified front mm-hmm. in a lot of circumstances and that is that is the ideal maybe ideal is the wrong word but sometimes you go in and you have a um a unified front and you sort of work out your conflict not in front of them mm-hmm. the question but instead it's especially i guess you never know like oh this will be an easy thing for us to talk about in front <laughs> yeah, of our kids right. and then all of a sudden <laughs> there's some gasoline you know uh-huh. i guess you don't always know how do you manage that and think about what conflict is good to navigate in front of the children? If, if you have differing opinions about things, then there's the undermining of the other parents. So we want to make sure we don't do that, right? So one parent says, sure, it's fine if you ride your bike to the friend's house. And then the other parent comes in and says, your mother has the worst judgment. We're not going to listen, right? So that's undermining. But and, and certainly there are certain issues and certain adult issues that you're not going to argue with in front of your child. But I think the bigger picture is, the sort of the overall thing is, is that when parents are angry at each other and kids see them being frustrated or being angry, and then they see the parents. Now, maybe, maybe they don't hear what the parent's saying, but it's basically, so l- l- let me give you an example. So say a parent had, some parents are having an argument. Let's say they're ha- having an argument about whether or not uh, the wife's brother is going to stay and, and, and stay with them over Thanksgiving because he's a real pain in the ass and it always causes conflict. So they're going to have this discussion. So they start talking about it. It gets a little heated, as you can imagine. And then the parents say in front of the kids, you know what? We have a really hard time figuring out what to do with Uncle Jeremy. You know what? We're going to go and talk about this for a little bit. We're going to go. We're going to figure this out. So then you can go away and you can have the discussion so that your kids aren't a part of it. And then you come back and then they see that there is a that there was a reconciliation or they see that there was some sort of agreement. So they don't have to be a part of the minutia of it. But I think the other the other extreme is when when people say to me, "I never saw my parents fight. I never saw them angry at each other." Now, I'm sure there are some couples where they say, "We never had a cross word." You hear that every once in a while and I think, "Okay." But but it's really about Letting your kids see that you can get angry at each other. Maybe you do go away and you talk about it. Maybe you have a, you know, you say, we're going to have a little time out from each other. And then they see that there's some resolution. So that's a really important thing for, for kids to see. If it's a smaller issue and they're having, you know, you're having a political discussion about something or you're disagreeing about how long it should cook the chicken or whatever, and they can see you working through that. They don't have to see the minutia of the discussion. They don't have to hear all the words, but they have to see that you, it's okay for them to see that you were angry at each other. And then it's okay for them to see you going through a process of reconciliation or figuring it out. And then a process of compromise. And a lot of families, you know, families will say, you know, we never saw any of that. Or they see a big blow up, big, huge, angry blow up. And then uh, parents give each other the silent treatment for three days. That's lousy. Yeah, that would be pretty painful. Yeah. I worked with a family once and the parents didn't speak to each other for two months and they were in the house with the kids and the kids were old enough to know what was going on. And even if you were little, 
and you didn't really know what was going on, you knew what was going on. So that's, it's really about, it's not, it's not sort of, again, right, it's not about emotional reactivity and vomiting on your kids so that they can see all that's going on and the intensity of it. But it's about recognizing that emotions are real. They come up. People have conflict. People have sadness. People have grief. People have worry. And how is it that you are showing your kids how to discuss it in a way that does make you vulnerable in a way that does allow you to work through it. So if we think about the patterns, as you're thinking about this, think about the patterns in your family. Let me give you a few that are worth paying attention to, right? So if you had a pattern in your family that was very passive aggressive, so that when somebody was angry at each other, they never talked about it or they didn't put it into words, but everybody knew that they were angry, but it was never spoken about or that they did things in order to irritate the other person because they were angry. The blaming pattern. So when something goes wrong, when you're feeling angry or frustrated, you immediately blame somebody else, a lack of of being able to take ownership for what's going on with you. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active, and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash fluster. 
Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. With sadness, the whole the whole idea that you can't feel sadness. I have talked to many adults who have told me that growing up, they were not allowed to be sad because it made their parents feel badly and the parents were really depending upon them to be happy and to be okay. So that's another pattern that you want to pay attention to. Similarly, I grew up in a household like that where I always tease that accentuate the positive was like our Mm -hmm. family mantra, that Mm -hmm. old uh, Andrew's sister's song. But it wasn't even so much that. It's that um, it was your sadness isn't valid. It must be your time of the month or Mm. maybe it's a full moon or Mm -hmm. just, you know, just keep trucking, right? Mm -hmm. Just, Mm -hmm. you might be sad, but just keep going. And, you know, as an adult now, when I think about, I was very annoyed when, if, if I was sad and I wanted to cry to my mom about something and she would say, maybe you have PMS as opposed to validating Mm -hmm. why I was sad. You know, she just simply couldn't handle her own sadness and she was doing the best she could. Right. And I think that's such a good example because if we're talking about, if we're talking about sadness or even if we're talking about worry, right? So if we talk about worry and you've got a a family where you're not allowed to be worried or unsure or uncertain about anything, then when somebody says, because what you're talking about, Robin, is sort of the denial of it, right? It's, It's not valid. So I say, oh, I'm really anxious about this. And somebody immediately comes in with the best of intentions and say, oh, well, there's no reason to worry about that. Well, why are you worried about that? Right? Oh, nothing's going to go wrong. There's that sort of like, what's the worst that could happen? Worst thing to say to an anxious child. Ever. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. The worst thing to say. Or, you know, for, for kids, like say, say, you know, you and I were, were both teenage girls, right? And so we say, you know, oh, I'm worried that somebody's going to make fun of me, or I'm worried that I'm not going to fit in. Or how about, you know, like, I'm not pretty. And then somebody says, oh, you're the most beautiful girl in the world, right? It doesn't give you any room to have that discussion, to say to that, to say to that child, well, that is a hard way to feel. Let's talk about that. Or I wonder, I wonder how that came about. Or if you're feeling sad, oh, that's, that's really, that's really disappointing that that happened to you. Or I can totally understand that. That's really tough. So there's that empathy again, right? And that the denial of it or the minimization of it, or it must be something else, you know, outside of yourself, it's a full moon or you're PMSing or whatever, right? Or it's because you're a Gemini or, you know, that happens, right? Oh, well, it must be because, right? So, so all of that is, comes with the best intentions. You think about it, they're just trying to make you feel better. But the result of it is, is that it doesn't give you an opportunity to really talk about what you're feeling and make some space for it. And then, of course, most importantly, be able to figure out how can I feel this and move through it. That's the really important skill that we want kids to to, to develop and to have. I think that the fact that I wasn't really allowed to feel sadness has had played certain things out. I can think of other households where people weren't allowed to express anger. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, those feelings still find their outlets. They do. And they're not the best ones, right? right. You have to, you have to, that's why I loved, you know, uh, really dark, sad music as mm-hmm. a teen, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and it's like, I love the Smiths and the Cure mm-hmm. and the that mm-hmm. whole experience because I loved listening to other people express their sadness. Yeah. And I think of families where I know the children did not express anger back to the parents and say, how dare you? And that also comes back to bite as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when you when you hear when you hear somebody say, "Well, I would have never talked to my parent that way," right? And that's you know they're usually saying that because somebody was disrespectful or or this or that, right? How do you now if you're if you're thinking about this as a parent and you're listening to this, how do you teach your child to express disappointment, frustration, anger in a way? that is respectful, say say you do something that lets your kid down. Say that you do something that your child didn't want you to do. Maybe you, maybe you cross a boundary, you embarrass them, you make an arrangement for them, you, you do something that they don't like. How do they let you know that 
in a way that's still respectful so that you're not shutting that down. So, so it, and again, it, it is not, it is not a little tiny sweet spot of perfection here. There is a lot of room for this because when we screw up and when we do things or when we react in a certain way, coming back and doing that post game analysis and saying to your child, I am so sorry. I got so angry when I was in that store and the way I spoke to that clerk, I am going to take full responsibility for that. I should have said, or what would you have said? or what would have been a better way for us to let them know that we are unhappy. There's all sorts of opportunity to talk through things with your kids. So you don't have to always do it perfectly the first time. I, I want that to be so clear to everybody. So if you if you lose it, that's not the that's not the worst possible thing that could happen as a parent. You just do the post-game analysis so that you can show your kids how you are thinking about your reactions and how you are taking responsibility for them. I think you told me something uh, since you're my sister-in-law for people who don't know. So when I had little kids, you had some really sage parenting advice. When your kids are talking to you and it might not be the biggest thing, you're still establishing that pattern of listening Mm -hmm. so that that, so that you're listening to them and hearing them and that they continue to share with you the things as they become increasingly important. Right. right. Like what yeah. was that thing? Because it's about eventually they'd start communicating their feelings to you when they're very young. Mm-hmm. And that is your opportunity to start figuring out how you want to respond to that. Right. right. Channeling your own Mr. Rogers and right. having that model of validation and listening. Right. And so say they're talking to you because they can't find that Lego piece that went under the couch and they're talking about it and you say that's it's okay if you can't find that lego piece or you're not really listening or it's just a lego piece well when you're 3 or when you're 4 that lego piece is huge and you want you want to establish a pattern so that then when there's something they're really up you know concerned about like mom i just graduated from college and i don't know what i'm going to do with the rest of my life right that's the 21 year old's lego piece under the couch And so you're establishing that pattern of if it's important to you, I'm listening and I'm validating versus saying, oh, that's nothing because I know because I'm an adult that that Lego pieces, you'll forget about this tomorrow. So you're opening the door for communication about the little things because the little things to them are big things and the big things are going to be big things. And so it's that it's it's again, it's process, not content. Yep. You know, as you were saying that and I was thinking of past examples just even the last few weeks we're gonna screw up because we're parents and there's no way to not screw up but if we if we can always remember to go into each conversation leading with validation Mm -hmm. if we can go in leading with validation everything that's probably the most important thing we can do it doesn't require brilliance to say that sounds very frustrating yeah I that really must be hear so your hard. sadness yep. and that must be really hard. Yep. And if we can only say that, that mm-hmm. is really the best we could do. That's right. And that's the opposite of, so that validation and that empathy is the opposite of the minimization and the denial. Why do you feel that way? Well, that's not a big deal. Well, you shouldn't be feeling that way, right? That's the shutting down. So again, if we think back and if you think back to your family's emotional legacy, who was the validating person for you? Who was the one that said, oh my gosh, your poor broken heart? Who was the one that said, let me help you wipe away your tears and give you a big hug? For a lot of kids, it wasn't for me, but for a lot of kids, they talk about the grandparent that had that role, right? The grandparent, if they had a sweet grandparent, because that, that grandparent was just sort of, you know, in that loving role. And the, the person, they say, oh, that person always, always listened to my stories or always did that. Who in your life said to you, I hear you. Who was that person? And how important that was for you versus perhaps who in your life was the one that said, you shouldn't be feeling that way, or we're not going to feel that way, or I'm not going to allow you to have that emotion, 
or we we aren't comfortable with that. So just just think of that a little bit in your life of who that person was for you. It may have been a teacher, actually. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a nice next door neighbor that you hung out with. Who knows who it was? But was there some adult in your life that heard you and that validated your emotional life in a way that made it feel okay to have those feelings and didn't shut them down and didn't minimize them and didn't overwhelm you with their feelings. That's another. So interestingly, taking all of this and thinking of parenting younger kids where there is such a simplicity to their feelings mm-hmm. and in an ease and validating them. We're talking about tweens and teens where they're really struggling with emotional management. I'm sure every mother of a teen or tween, mother or father, would want to say you're overreacting Mm -hmm. because they probably (laughs) are. So how do you handle those types of more powerful outbursts from the kids when they are? When in fact they are overreacting, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. Right. And to say you're overreacting, they don't think that they are. They think they're reacting perfectly in keeping with what's going on for them, right? So, so just change your language a little bit and say, I can see right now that you are feeling extremely blank about this. Is there anything I can do? Or do you want to take a break from this and we can talk about it later? I know that you are feeling absolutely overwhelmed by these strong feelings. Is there anything I can do to help? And is there any way that I can help you work through it? Right? So you, you sort of offer, you acknowledge the feeling. So what you just did there is you acknowledge the feeling. I can see that you're having really big feelings about this. And then you plant the seed. Now they may reject it, right? But then you plant the seed that there may be some action that we're going to take. If they're overreacting about a boundary, you're giving them. Right. If they're overreacting about a boundary, you say, I understand. I get that you're feeling this way. This is the boundary that I'm going to keep. I, you know, you, you have a right to your feelings about it, but I have a right to this boundary as a parent. So you, you know, you stand your ground. It, it is important to them and it does feel devastating to them and it does feel like the end of the world to them. And that's okay that it feels that way. It doesn't mean that then you change that boundary. That's one of the things we've talked about in terms of not being able to have set boundaries and have control with your child, healthy control, because you're so afraid of those big emotions, which is probably something that comes from your own emotional legacy. When I think about anger, for some reason, anger is one that sticks with me because I think that women have a hard time expressing anger with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, spouses sometimes have a really easy time expressing anger mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But every, anger is one that some people don't learn the skills of anger. And when Sex in the City was a big TV show and I was so into it, one of the things that I always thought about of what it was that made people really love the show is that they saw a group of women friends who were emotionally authentic with each other. Mm -hmm. And there were great episodes where Carrie and Miranda would yell at each other. How could you do this? You're betraying who you are. And, and in reality, not a lot of female friends have the the ability to go there in that kind of anger. And I think that as a fantasy, we all loved watching Mm -hmm. that play out. And so with anger, I think... I think expressing anger, I'm hoping you will say that that can be taught and learned in that way. And some families do do it pretty well. I think that if I think about women expressing their anger, I think it's hard in friendships. And I wonder if those of you listening can, can think about this. I wonder if it's easier with siblings, right? I wonder if you have... If you learn as a girl to express your anger, one of the places that you do it early on is with your sisters and your brothers. And there's all sorts of gender implications of how anger is expressed and what's acceptable and what's not in terms of gender growing up. You know, that we that boys will be boys thing that drives me crazy, that we give permission for boys to just express their anger through violence and hurting each other. And we say, oh, boys will be boys and what happens when a girl gets very angry and how we respond differently to that. Yeah. And I think modeling that, I think you're, I think you're so right about that, Robin, the ability to let a friend know that you are angry with them. You know, if we all think about that, that is a really 
tricky thing for us to do with our friendships culturally, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I have a very vivid memory of one of my best friends. I knew she was mad at me. Yeah. She finally told me why she was mad at me. And and it, it took her so much courage. I just remember just saying to her, I know that was so hard. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Thank you for loving me so much that you were mm-hmm. so willing to be uncomfortable. And yeah. it felt the the courage she showed that anger to to be able to express that to me i felt i actually felt really loved in that mm-hmm. moment and i felt so apologetic of why i had made her upset and it was just like it was such a great thing but yeah. you know we were like in our 40s and we'd known each other 20 years mm-hmm. i had a very close friend and we had a situation we were in our early 20s actually just out of college And there was just a big misunderstanding sort of of where we were and what was going on in both of our lives. And we couldn't talk about it. And it led to just such a chasm between us, which ultimately has been resolved. Uh, But it's one of the great sort of regrets. And I think back on it with great sadness that we weren't really able to talk about it. We weren't really able to work through it. And uh, I think, I think we could talk about it now. I know we could, but it was, it was the, the inability for both of us to talk about what was going on, that how we both felt abandoned by the other during that time. And it really is a great sadness for me when I think about it. I think that's so true. I think that actually a lot of friendships just fade because of the inability to articulate our feelings of anger or mm-hmm. abandonment. You have to care enough to get uncomfortable. That's right. If you don't care enough to get uncomfortable, then maybe it isn't worth it, right? right? I don't know. Right. Like you have to fight for those friendships. And I think coming back to our families and our partners and our kids, it's. I think it's just a cool idea for uh, two parents to say, these are things, these are the emotions that are really hard for us. Mm-hmm. Let's support each other and make sure that we're really able to find a space for them in how we're, how we're parenting. And, yeah. and maybe each other, it's different. Maybe right. someone's better with sadness and the other's better with anger. And then you, I mean, I, you have uh, so much experience of maybe there really is one parent who's fueling the worry and the other parent isn't. Mm-hmm. That's right. a whole other show. Yeah, that's a whole other show. We can certainly talk about that. But I think that what you're saying is a, is a nice sort of point to put on this is that it's about recognizing what are the emotions that are difficult for you? What was hard for you and your family? What did you learn or what you didn't learn? And then how can you consciously work on interrupting the patterns interrupting the legacies so that your kids are better equipped to express themselves to the people that they love, be it their friends, their partners, their children, when they're your grandchildren. That is just such a wonderful gift. And it's not about over-talking. It's not about psychobabble. It's not about being mushy and all that kind of stuff that sometimes people go, oh God, this is what therapists talk about. I'm talking about concretely saying, this is how we handle anger. This is how we talk about sadness. How can I make room for it? How can I teach you that it's okay for you to feel these things? That's what I think we want to pay attention to. That's great. Everyone should watch your Mr. Rogers video on your website. I'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, thanks. I love Mr. Rogers. Who doesn't? I know. All right. Well, that was a nice sort of big tackle a topic discussion, but it's such an important one. I'm sure we'll come back to it again and again, this idea of emotional management and how do we teach our kids so that we can send them off to the world, into the world and have healthy, connected relationships. So I don't know See what you next. It's been real. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so we will be back as just like Mr. Rogers used to say, 
right? I'll have things you'll want to talk about or you'll have things we'll want to talk about. Um, Lawsuit copyright infringement. Okay. (laughs) You know, you can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, thanks for joining us and we will be back. We will always have things to talk about in terms of emotional management. And remember, there is not one perfect way to parent. There is a great, big, huge, sweet spot that starts with validation and love and connection. And so it's been great spending time with you, Robin. Always, always fascinating and thought-provoking. So thank you, Lynn. Yeah, we'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.